welcome you. Merry Christmas. Hope you guys uh, have, a, have a merry one. Um, I'm not your normal uh, pastor. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to always uh, preach during Advent, and every three or four months I get the opportunity. So, Luke, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I, feel, uh, I feel blessed. I feel well prayed for and excited today. My, my daughter even prayed for me this morning on the way here. Uh, her uh, is kind of funny. We were we were in the car. We're driving, and and my wife was like, well, "Let's pray for Daddy." And my little two-year-old said, "I want to pray or whatever." And in the back, in the back, and she said, "Daddy, Amen." And and then it got to my 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 four-year-old, and she, uh, without hesitation, she said, "God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. In Jesus' name, Amen." And I was like, "Ren, thank you. I appreciate that." Um. Well, today we're going we're gonna to get back into this uh, Advent, um, Advent series that we've been going through. It's been a, a great series. I always refocus our hearts on the main reason for the season, um, and Jesus as being the reason for the season. Uh, Luke has really hit on two big uh, topics, and then we're gonna, today we're going to hit another big, big talk, topic in the, uh, the next two as well. So it's a, really a five-week series, but uh, Luke has talked on the full, Jesus being the fullness of time, um, uh, Jesus being the fullness of man, and today we're going to really talk about the fullness, uh, Jesus being the fullness, uh, fullness of God. And so uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, work through this passage and you guys have a, a greater understanding uh, that we celebrate Jesus during this Christmas season. So, I'm glad you guys are with us. Well, in 1982, there was a, the NCAA National Championship basketball game was really one of the best that's ever been played. I don't know if you guys have ever watched it or seen it or, or, or heard about it, but it's between the Georgetown Hoyas and the North Carolina Tar Heels. Georgetown Hoyas at the time was coached by a man by the name of John Thompson. He, he was an incredible coach, and he, had, he was a incredible, had an incredible prowess for recruiting players. And at that time, 1982, he had two guys on his team that were really juggernauts, and they were going to be first-round draft picks in the NBA draft, a guy by the name of Freddie Ladd-Brown and Patrick Ewing. And they really had no problem during the NCAA tournament. They kind of really beat everybody that was in front of them. They, uh, it didn't matter, Villanova, Houston, it didn't matter. They, they ran right through them. They got to the national championship game at where they faced North, the North Carolina Tar Heels. Well, North Carolina, on the other hand, was a little bit different than, than Georgetown. Georgetown was more power. Patrick Ewan was a seven-foot center. It was all about centered around the big man. Well, North Carolina was a little bit different. They were more finesse, and they were fundamental. They were coached by a man by the name of Dean Smith. Dean Smith really built that program to be, be the blue blood of what it is today, but him and a guy named Roy, Roy Williams. But during the game, the game started, it was really kind of tit for tat the whole game. It was back and forth, back and forth, what, score here, score there, score here, score there, and really did not get more than three points ahead in either team. And it came down to the final 30 seconds of the game, and uh, Georgetown was down by one point, came down, ball went around the perimeter, went inside of their big man, Patrick Ewing. Patrick, Patrick Ewing hit a layup, 62 to 61. Dean Smith calls a timeout. They come to a huddle, the huddle, and the commentary, if you watch the game on YouTube, the commentary is unbelievable. 
they're, st- they're sitting there analyzing the game. They're, they're talking about it. And, and the, the commentators say, well, I think Georgetown needs to focus on a, a man, their small forward named Sammy Perkins. Sammy's a small, small, small forward. He was an incredible athlete, and, and he could really jump, shoot the jump shot. Or, or they need to focus on a man named James Worthy. James Worthy was soon to be one of the best Lakers that ever played, uh, right behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But James Worthy, we need to focus on him. He's a power forward. He's an incredible. He's got an incredible shot, and he's got power around the rim. But they need to focus on him. Well, they broke the huddle, and and they brought the ball down. And of course, it's one of the most memorable 30 seconds in all of basketball. But the ball comes down. The ball goes around the perimeter, around the perimeter, and it goes around about 20 seconds. And it hands or it lands in, a, in the hands of a skinny freshman by the name of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan doesn't hesitate, takes one, one a dribble and shoots it and bang. It scores the game-winning shot 63-62. to 62. Iconic memory of him, little skinny freshman, Michael Jordan, sitting there with the, with the shot with the uh, uh, two seconds in the background, and he scores and he wins. Now, after the game, it was, it's interesting, the commentary was so focused on the other two players and this little skinny freshman, <clears throat> Michael Jordan, <clears throat> excuse me, Michael Jordan was the, was the game winner, uh, hits the game winner, but... They asked John Thompson after the game, what was going on with your thinking? Why didn't you, what, what were you doing with your defense? And they said, well, we knew that Perkins could beat us, and we knew Worthy could beat us, but we didn't know anything about this Michael Jordan. You know, unbeknownst to him that he would become a five-time M- MVP in the NBA, six-time NBA champion, he had numerous scoring titles, all defensive player uh, of the century in the 90s. He would be the greatest player of all time. He had God-like status on the basketball court. He had the ability to be in control of all facets of the game and minimize every mistake. What makes people like Michael Jordan have that type of status? that type of control, that type of ability. Guys like Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps or um, uh, Venus Williams, or excuse me, Serena Williams, the other sister. What are some of these greats? Why are they elevated to kind of gods in their sport? And why is Jesus God? And what are the connections? Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to take an honest look at Jesus Christ. And is he really God? Is he really this real deal divine deity? Let me pray for us and we'll jump into our text. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the the blessing in knowing you. God, I just pray for the word to be preached right now, Lord. I'm I'm a flawed human, God, and I need your help. I ask that you give me the words to say, give uh, the, the listeners the ears to hear, God, the Holy Spirit, tweak our interest, Lord, now. Teach us your word and convict us. God, I pray this, this, this wholly offends some people in here, Lord, and I ask that you would move and motivate us to repent. God, I ask that you would help us celebrate you this, this season, 
Give us strength to love our families. God, thank you for the word. Help it to be fresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Excuse me. Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 5 through 18 is what we're going to be looking at. Um, I think it'll be on the screen here, and it's, I'll be honest with you, it's a, 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 the passage is uh, back and forth. Uh, if, if the writer was he, Hebrew, the Holy Spirit was writing through the writer of Hebrew, Hebrew he'd be an ENTP on the uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, be kind of all over the place and unorganized because Hebrews is very intelligent, but it's kind of, I don't know, it's a little bit confusing sometimes, but here we go. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to go five, really 5 through 18. Hang with me here as we read. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregations. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him." And again, behold, I and the children, God, uh, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that it helps, but it helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right. Like I said, it's confusing. It's a little convoluted, and I'm not here today to try to make it less confusing. It's God's Word. We want to keep it the way it is. I'm not really adding to it, not really subtracting. What I'm going to really try to do is kind of break it down in categories so it's a little more digestible for us as we enter this kind of this Advent holiday season because there's a lot going on and there's a lot of $5 words here and I'm just a little country boy from the middle of nowhere. So I don't know if I can break all of that down for you, but I'm going to help you. Um, And today is really going to be a little more theological and heady than it is going to be practical. 
And I think that's the Advent season. It's not meant for us to be like, okay, we're just going to go run, 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 and do, do, do for Jesus. It's really going to be more for, hey, let's just sit and marinate in this. Let's let it get in our bones and affect our thinking. And that's going to really push us out. It's going to be a knee-jerk reaction to get us out there and, uh, um, and, and do our good works for Christ. Really, right thinking leads to right living. So let's look at this passage and look really kind of in depth in the passage. And really the thesis of the passage, passage is Hebrews 2, 7 through 9. It says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection, in subjection under his feet. So we really have one observation, one observation here and then kind of two implications out of that, two things that are implied. And the, really the first observation we make here is, is it says that you made him a little lower than the angels. Now, later we see who he's talking about here, but it's Jesus Christ. He says, it made him a little lower uh, than the angels, uh, is referring to, to Christ incarnate. Now, uh, really Luke talked about you know, Jesus being, becoming flesh last week, but uh, really Matthew 1, 23 and, and John 1, 16 are the reference passage, passages for this verse. So if you look at Matthew 1, 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall, shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's that idea of Jesus, God, being man and coming in the form of, uh, of human. John 1.16 says this. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the idea of Christmas. Christmas. All kinds of there's all kinds of Christmas hymns. Uh, you know, Emmanuel. I, I can't remember the song now. Actually, let's not try that. Um, so there's all kinds of Emmanuel uh, hymns out there about God being with us in human form. And so if you look at if you know the Bible in any way, if you if you study it, or if you think about it, or or you look at these passages, you say, okay, where are they at? Well. One of them's in Matthew, one of them's in John. Both of them are in the first chapter. If you think about the Bible, the Old Testament is before Christ, and the New Testament is really Christ, uh, Christ really coming uh, as a human into, um, into our world. And when we see it here, you've got to make the observation that, you know, it's the first, the first of the books, the first of the New Testament, the this is this form of God coming into the world. It's, if you look back at the old prophets, the, the prophets have been talking about this guy, this, this Savior that was going to come and save them. Or, uh, there, there's these, uh, these prophetic uh, ideas of this mighty Savior coming. And here, boom, here, here he is. Matthew 1, John 1, the very front of the New Testament. It's kind of like, I don't know if you guys are, I was really, a long time ago, I was into the, the N64. It came out in whenever I was sixth grade, I think. But I don't know if you guys are, 
go, that's the Nintendo 64. For some of you, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know the N64, but the, 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 there's about a two-year stint of them marketing this system coming out. And people got brochures, looked at the brochures. Kids were fired up about this thing coming out. And, and, and the, the buildup and the hype to this thing being pr- promoted was huge. And then it came out, and it was almost like a letdown. Like, this is it? This is what they've been promoting this whole time? Kind of not, not similar, but it was kind of like this. People back in the day, they would, they would you know, they had all these, pro- these prophecies, prophecies and all this, these words written down. They, they got all their buddies together and they would study these prophets, you know, prophecies and they were real fired up about this, this Savior coming, this deity coming, this, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then boom, word on paper became flesh in real life. And so, um, so there was these little clubs made and little, little studies, Bible studies maybe. And they were really fired up about it. And all of a sudden... The Word became flesh. The word incarnation, great word. I, I looked it up, been studying it this week. If you, if, if you look at it, it's a Latin word, incarne, or uh, in, uh, in flesh. Uh, when I think of carne, I think of carne asada steak at the Mexican restaurant, right? So it's in meat or in flesh. So God in the flesh is here. Okay, so... We've talked about that, and really Luke talked about the idea of God being with us, and that's really the first part of this verse in in Hebrews 2, 7, verse 7. So the question is, why is he God, and how is he God? Really, if you look at verse 8 and 9, that's kind of where it begins to shift, if you look at 8 there, it, said, it says, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in, in subjection under his feet. Well, as we look at this, it says that everything is in subjection under his feet. He is in full control. The word used as a title to describe Jesus and the, the yeah, really the title to describe Jesus is a word in the Greek uh, called kairos. Now, the, the Greek language is a little bit, a little bit different than um, uh, English. Uh, instead of opposites, it's kind of inverses. Like, they'll say something and it'll be an inverse. The, the inverse tense of it will mean something else. And this, in, the, the inverse really usually is defined by kind of a single ability or a single, I don't know how to describe it, but Kairos, the inverse of it is doulos, and I, don't judge me, I got a tattoo of doulos on my arm, but doulos, the inverse is slave or servant or bond servant. The, 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 the word used here is kairos, which is kind of the opposite of that, which means master or lord. And kairos is referred really over several thousand times to refer to Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm saying this, I'm coming to your neighborhood, the reason I'm describing this is, is in, the Greek, in the Greek, there was not a welfare system. It was not, in the Roman days, no welfare system. You couldn't apply for welfare. You couldn't go to the government and say, hey, well, you know, can't find employment, can't find a job. Can you support us? There's no welfare, welfare state. So 
what people would do, they would sell themselves into indentured servanthood or, or slavery. To a master, if you were poor and you were, had, had debts to society, you would sell yourself into slavery to a master who could pay your debt. But in turn, that master had 100% control. And the slave gave up his control, his rights to his life. And so when this switch happens, the element of control is the baseline denominator that has changed. So the word here in verse 8 that is kind of referring to the title of Jesus is kairos. I know we're a long trail, but we're getting back there, is, is kairos, the word kairos, which means master and Lord. He is in control of everything. Everything is his subjection to him. That's one of the reasons why he's God. That's one of the reasons why Jesus is the king. If you look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it gives even more support of this. I think it should be on the screen there. It says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you were just to do a study on that passage, uh, the word all is, comes up several times. He's in control of everything. Everything was created for him, uh, and everything is under his feet. And it seems as if, as we read that passage, everything has been kind of engineered for this Jesus to come into the world. Not only in the prophets of old, but even now, the word becoming flesh, there is a need for him. And that's one reason why, why Jesus is God. You know, I read an article a while back, uh, it's actually it's been like seven, eight years ago, probably more like 10. But I read an article about Steve Jobs and kind of his mindset and, and um, Steve Jobs is kind of on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, business crazies. Um, but the, in the article, he was talking about the reason he created the iPhone and kind of the, it, the, kind of the first inspiration of it. And he said, I, I wanted something, I wanted to create something. At the time, he had the iPod. And he said, but I, I wanted to combine not just the iPod, but I wanted to combine it with the phone and I wanted to have everything in one little box. I wanted you to feel like you were the God of your world. In the article, it continues to talk about it, and he says, I, I wanted you to have full control of your relationships. I wanted you to have full control of all knowledge at your fingertips. Um, I, I wanted you to have control of, of everything through this little box that, that you could call people on. You have your, your music and everything. It's interesting that that Jobs had that kind of foresight to, to want people, I think it's touching on something in the fabric of our being here, of being om, omnipowerful, omnipotent, and omnificent, and all-knowing, all-everywhere, and all-powerful. That's kind of what the iPhone has done through FaceTime, through Google, um, 
You know, it's, it's through just really using it. You, you, you're really in control. This is one of the baseline elements of being God, is in full sovereignty of our world. It says here in verse 8 that everything was in subjection to Jesus. Well, if you need more evidence, and not just from the Word, you go to Mark chapter 1 through 6, and it shows that Jesus really is controlling everything. Do a quick study over the first six chapters of, of Mark, you'll see that Jesus controls the futures of his disciples by influencing, him to follow, influencing them to follow him. Jesus controls the bio, biology of human, the human anatomy. Uh, excuse me, Jesus controls biology and human anatomy by healing people. Controls the spiritual realm of things by casting out demons. He controls the physical appearance of a man by healing him of leprosy. You see him control the rest on the Sabbath by allowing his, um, uh, his disciples to rest and him rest as well. You see, Jesus calmed the storm, showing that he has uh, full control over nature. You see, Jesus controlling the measure of faith by stealing it into his followers. Jesus controls everything. It's all his. So why? Why does Jesus come fully human and fully God? Why does he do this? Is he just on some power trip? Is he kind of egotistical? Is he narcissistic? Does Jesus just want to come into the world to say, hey, come look at me and all the things that I control. Everything was created for me, kind of like a little, like a, like a little spoiled rich brat. No, he comes in the world for a different reason. If you look at verse 9, he says, it says this. Kind of we're getting a little more into it here. It says... Like I said, it was going back to the thesis of the passage. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what's the crossroads? Well, we look here and it says that he's crowned with glory and honor. If the implications of being crowned with something, that means he's a king of something. He, 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 um, he is, he's been crowned, he's been adorned with a title, and it says that he's been crowned with glory and honor. So there's an implication here that Jesus did something or is going to do something. And it says that he suffered death. He suffered death so that the grace of God might be, he might t taste death for everyone. That's interesting. Why did he have to taste death? And why does that make him great? What well, does sacrificing him make it great? This is the real dichotomy of Jesus for me, and it's the, it's the hardest, hardest theological truth for me to grasp and understand. I struggle with it often. Um, if you, I'm, a, I'm a little more pragmatic in my thinking and a little more rational. I'm not, I'm not a, really a romantic about life. I'm a little more rational, I think. And this is where the, the skepticism oftentimes come in. I can understand that God, Jesus being man, but how is, he, 
How is he God? And this story is extremely scandalous. God sending his only son, Jesus, who was perfect, without blemish, to die on a cross for, and sacrifice himself for others that hated him? Like, that doesn't make sense. That's like a jigsaw puzzle that just doesn't fit. But as you begin to think about it here, it begins to make a little more like clarity. It's like, it's like those optics when you go to, the, uh, uh, go to the, the, the eye doctor, like one, two, one, two. It's like it, it becomes, starts to become more clear. See, see, God had to have a perfect sacrifice. So he had two pitchers of water sitting here. Two pitchers of water, they were purified pitchers of water, and I had a vial of poison. And that, that poison, I, on one of them, I, 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 poured a, I poured a bunch of poison in one of those pitchers of water, a bunch. I was just like squirting a bunch in it. And the other one, I poured one drop. Ding, that's it. Would you drink either one of those waters? No, because it would kill you. Jesus is pure, pure record. God couldn't use a goat. God couldn't use a bunny, even though they're cute. He couldn't use a bunny, couldn't use a pigeon, couldn't even use another human for this sacrifice because your sin is so nasty in front of him. He had to send his only son who was pure, completely pure. He took those two purified waters and he threw them out because they were poisoned by our record, and he brought in a brand new one, the, the best alkaline water out there. I don't know if alkaline water is good, but the best water out there, Jesus, and he sacrificed it in order for us to have life. And that's the, really the first part of the dichotomy. The, the second part that's a little bit like weird is that Jesus somehow now is our brother because he suffered and was tempted like us. This is really the third reason why Jesus is God and what baffles me. His record was spotless because he never sinned. He was tempted like us, but he was never sinned. He was tempted to be prideful and have vainglory. He was tempted to be greedy cheat on his taxes or covet others' stuff. He was tempted to be lustful and illicit sexual desires. He was tempted to commit adultery. He was tempted to envy, be jealous of others. He was tempted to gossip and have malice for his neighbor or for his best friend. He was tempted to be gluttonous. He was tempted to drink excessively. He was tempted to be angry. He's tempted to be wrathful. He's tempted to be lazy. He, he's tempted to, to mess up. And that's another reason why he is the, the thing we can confide in. That dichotomy of, okay, you, you saved me and you sanctify me. You're my savior and my friend. You're my high priest and the one who died for me. That is so like... This jigsaw puzzle that man knocks you off balance of who Jesus really is. And that's why we celebrate him. That's why during the Christmas season, he is the reason 
for the season. This baby who was a, a real live baby, a real, I mean, a real human, was also a king and was crowned with honor and was tempted, but lived perfectly. He had full control, and he died in the place of people who hated him. It's an incredible message, incredible scandalous story, and I think it deserves celebrating. It deserves singing these Christmas hymns with all vigor and heart that we have. If you guys would stand up with me, we're going to, uh, we're going to, our, the end of the sermon, I've got one application and we're going to kind of look at it together and then we're going to take communion. But, gosh, these lights up here are hot, brother. I see what's going on now. Woo. I'm cooking. Um, but I'm going to read this passage. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Elise Fitzpatrick. Um, she, she wrote a book called Comforts of the Cross or Comforts from the Cross. I'm going to read this and, and uh, we're going to want you guys to kind of not read it out loud, read it in your mind along with me, but kind of meditate on the words because I think it's really, uh, I, I find with it, sometimes men, we kind of get in the, uh, kind of get in this mode of, man, we just got to listen to men authors for some reason. But uh, this this author, for some reason, is very motherly to me. I don't know what it is. I feel like when she, she writes, it's just like she's wrapping her arms around me and said, come on in. Um, I, don't, I don't know what it is. But this, just want to kind of meditate, just meditate and marinate on this. This is Elise Fitz, Fitzpatrick, and this is kind of ending our time together tonight. But it says this. This is from Comforts from the Cross. It says, Plainly stated, let me encourage you to proclaim the gospel to yourself today and every day. Our poor, burdened hearts are in such need of a gospel celebration. When you fail today, you need the comfort of this proclamation. He died for that very sin. Tell yourself about his death. When you feel overwhelmed by your responsibilities, responsibilities, remember that he is ruling sovereignly over every facet of your life. And as he came, he will soon return to right every wrong and relieve you of your trouble. When you wonder if your life will ever change, he wants you to remember that he is coming back and that this life, is as it is, as it is won't last forever. Make a proclamation. Celebrate Jesus. I'm forgiven. He's paid the penalty of our sin. He's my Savior. And soon, he'll return to take me to our heavenly home. That's what we should do this, this Christmas season is celebrate, remembering the gospel. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Lord, thank you so much for the blessing of your word, the complexity of your word. Lord, I I struggle, you know, my, my struggles, Lord, with faith. I ask that you would help uh, me in my struggles, Lord. I pray for this message that it was honoring to you, it was honoring to, um, uh, to your son, Jesus. God, I pray that, that the Holy Spirit would reign in our hearts. God, as we go into a time of communion, Lord, I ask that you just Help us to marinate and think about who your son Jesus was. In Jesus' name, amen.